on the cusp, the podcast that analyzes the new forms of aggression facing liberal democracies and hears from the innovative people at the forefront of countering that aggression. I'm your host, Elizabeth Braun. I have the privilege of working on these issues as a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Now, elections may not seem like a national security issue, but at the very least, since 2016, people are aware that hostile countries can try to interfere with another country's elections. That's when Russia did so in the United States, though it had, of course, done so for much longer in other countries, such as the Baltic states. And we should point out that Russia is far from the only country that engages in election interference. But what we have seen in this year's US presidential election is something completely different. Little foreign interference from what we can tell, but enormous disinformation and distrust generated by Americans themselves. And as we speak, the Trump campaign is alleging massive voter fraud, arguing that Trump won by a landslide and his campaign is accusing communists, including the regimes of Cuba and Venezuela of being behind the alleged fraud. And what we're seeing in the United States are two completely different realities where the different sides can't even agree on what constitutes a fact. And to a less extreme extent, we are seeing the same fragmentation in other countries as well. Around Europe, anti-COVID activists are accusing their governments of fascist methods simply because their governments are asking them to wear face masks and social distance. And in fact, in democracies everywhere, we're seeing lots of people protesting alleged shady dealings by their governments rather than proposing ideas for which policies their countries should pursue. And I remember 17 years ago, 18 years ago, we had protests everywhere against the Iraq war. And today we have protests about face masks. So I'm thrilled to have the best possible expert as my guest today. And he is Dr. Kevin Casasamora, the Secretary General of International IDEA, the International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance. International IDEA has traditionally focused on emerging democracies, but it looks like we may well need it in more mature democracies too. Now, Kevin is that rare thing, a person combining a career as an academic, a top politician and a top government official. Until recently, he was a member of Costa Rica's Presidential Commission for State Reform, and he was a managing director of a consultancy, and he has been Costa Rica's second vice president and minister of national planning, and he has also been secretary for political affairs at the Organization of American States. He has taught at Georgetown University, George Washington University, and the University of Texas at Dallas. Uh, he has a law degree from the University of Costa Rica, a master's in government from the University of Essex, and a PhD in political science from Oxford. And he's the author of several studies on campaign finance, elections, democratization, citizen security, and civil military relations. He has been a young global leader at the World Economic Forum, and he is a member of the Bretton Woods Committee. So Kevin, you are truly the best possible person to discuss this mess we are seeing now with the elections in the United States and what it means beyond this moment for the United States and for other countries. Now, during the 2016 election in the US, there was considerable meddling by Russia, and this time much less so from what we can tell. What do you make of that? Well, first of all, Liz, thanks so much for, for having me in the podcast. I'm an avid consumer of podcasts myself, so I really enjoyed this, this type of, of conversation. Look, I would, I would say that there are three reasons why 2020 was different than 2016 when it came to foreign interference in U.S. elections. 
Number one, and perhaps most obvious, I think that the country was better prepared to deal with this, with this threat. And some of the corporate actors, big tech firms running social media, were probably less willing to play ball with this, right? So that's one first reason. Second, my impression is that, I mean, there's a geopolitical rationale to this as well. I mean, I think that the Russian government was more cautious and more cognizant of the balance between costs and rewards of such an intervention. Given the way opinion polls behaved for most of the campaign and strong likelihood that Trump was not going to be reelected. I mean, in the end, you know, it ended up being a slightly more close election than, than we thought, but it didn't look that way up until election day. I think they were hedging their bets and they probably didn't want to poke the eye of, of the new, potentially new administration with Biden at the helm more than, than, than necessary. So I think they hedged their bets and were more cautious. And number three, and this is perhaps the most important uh, reason and, and one that speaks to the kind of issues that you're raising in your, in your initial remarks, quite frankly, because if the purpose of the Russian foreign interference in 2016 in the US and in other places is to discredit democracy, well, I have to say, that political actors in the, in the U.S. are doing a fine job themselves. I don't think that the, the Russians need to provide a lot of stimulus for the U.S. political system to discredit itself in as stark a way as we are witnessing this, these days. I mean, I think the I was particularly saddened when I saw a few days ago the, the images. I mean, there was one of these demonstrations in D.C. to support Trump after the election. And to see the, the scenes of, of those folks that were demonstrating, basically fighting it out with blows, physical blows, with Antifa activists and people from, from the left. Well, that's, that's exactly the kind of domestic turmoil that I would think Putin and other authoritarian leaders hell-bent on discrediting democracy was hoping to see. I mean, and, and, and it, it, it's all coming from, it's emanating, you know, naturally from the workings of the of the U.S. political system these days. They don't need any external stimulus, which is enormously disturbing and sad to see. So, I, I would I would attribute it to that. It is extremely disturbing to see because um, it's it's in a sense easier to 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 address a problem caused by another country. But if, if the problem, uh, and especially uh, 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 such a significant problem as this one is caused by the country itself, where do we even begin? And, and so I wonder if, if America and maybe other countries as well, if, if, if the social contract is breaking uh, or is it already broken? Well, I mean, let me, before I, I answer that question, let me add something to my previous to my previous comment, which is that 
I mean, the other reason why the political system in the U.S. is making Putin's life much easier in terms of discrediting uh, democracy is that, to be very frank, you have one major political actor in the U.S., namely the Republican Party, which has become a subversive actor in terms of the workings of democracy. You know that in the, in the old literature about democratic transitions, much of it written about Latin America, my part of the world, there was a term that was used repeatedly in the context of transitions. The, the Republican Party has become a semi-loyal, a semi-loyal actor, which is basically an actor that is willing to play ball with democracy as long as it stays in power is willing to sacrifice democracy if democracy doesn't yield the result of having the Republican Party in power. Well, I mean, if you want to subvert the democracy, what we are witnessing as we speak is one major political actor willing to do the bidding of those external actors willing to subvert democracy. Now, to your question about the, the social contract, well, yeah, I mean, I, I have to, I mean, it depends how we define the social contract. It, it, there are different exceptions. I mean, there are different ways to go about this. I mean, one way to define the social contract, I guess there's a, there's a broad concept and a more restricted concept. I mean, it, 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 the more restricted concept is this notion that we, you know, as citizens are willing to contribute through taxes and other kinds of social obligations. And in return, we receive something from the state, something in terms of public services, public goods, personal safety, what have you. Well, I mean, that contract, that, that meaning of the social contract was always rather weak in the U.S. Because when, when you take countries in Western Europe, a very strong component of the very definition of citizenship is connected to the fact that you pay taxes and, and you expect something in return. I mean, in the U.S., it's never been, it's never been like that, particularly because, I mean, it, it was always weak, but over the past 40 years, there has been a very systematic effort to delegitimize the use of, of paying taxes. Yeah. Right, so that notion of the social contract was always weak in the U.S. Now, the broader concept of the social contract, which is, which I guess speaks to the ability of a given society to find common ground, to find common purpose, to find common causes, where people can, you know, that people can rally around, even if they may disagree. You know, the 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 old notion that. We don't always agree on the outcomes, but we agree on the rules and the set of procedures yeah. to settle our, our differences. That social contract is under enormous strain in the U.S. That's no longer, it's, not, it's no longer obvious that it's holding up. I mean, the ability of the, of the U.S., I mean, the, the levels of polarization that we are seeing in the U.S. are such that... I, I don't see any, any obvious way in which society as a whole can agree on a common purpose. If they can agree on facts, you know, one of the things that we are seeing these days is really 
And my impression is that one has to interpret the results of the, the, the way in which the electoral result has been perceived by different parts of, of, the, of the American society. People live in alternative realities, completely alternative realities, you know, and are willing to accept things that have no factual basis whatsoever. And then that's, that may be, that might, may sort of, uh, they may get away with that, or society may be able to, 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 um, to uh, withstand that, that strain or that pressure for some time, but uh, democracy doesn't, uh, doesn't perpetuate itself. It's, it's dependent on, on, on all of us uh, doing our part to keep it alive or otherwise it will collapse. And I, I, I am seriously concerned myself that, that uh, that's the process that's happening in America now. If not enough people believe in democracy and do their part for it, and if there's mudslinging every single day, and as you said, if, if, if basic facts are disputed, where does that leave the country? It, it's not just about elections, it's about the country's ability to operate. Absolutely. I mean, if, if that's the thing. I mean, if you don't agree on the set of procedures that you have in place to deal with internal disputes, for instance, elections, if you don't agree on the, on, on the soundness of the process that leads to a certain social decision as to who I mean who gets to govern the place you know there's 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 not a lot that you can agree on in this case what we're seeing in the US is that you perceive your your political opponents not simply as people that think in a different way you perceive them as wicked yeah you perceive them as willing to steal an election. I mean, stop for a second and think how, how serious a charge that is. I mean, if you perceive the guys on the other side of the curve as willing to steal an election from you, to cheat on you, chances are the next time around, you're gonna cheat as well. Yeah. Chances are, I mean, if you perceive it in that light, there's nothing you won't be able to do in order to right what you perceive as a, as a very wicked kind of wrong. Exactly. And, and so this leads us to, to the implications of this, this, not just for America, but beyond. And you have been a, a cabinet minister in, in a, what we might call a... a uh, newer democracy and, and your uh, major academic career as an expert on, on democracy and uh, you obviously advise emerging democracies. So what does this mean, mean for emerging democracies if they see one of the most mature democracies in the world uh, fragmenting like this? Will it make them less it's, willing to It's dramatic. It? It's dramatic. I mean, the impact of this is, the global impact of this for the cause of democracy is shattering in several different ways. And let me, let me unpack this a little bit. I mean, first of all, there's the geopolitical side to this. One of the things that is seldom said is the fact that the spread of democracy, I mean, the, the, the process whereby democracy spread all over the world over the past half a century, was very much connected to the fact that the single most influential, the single most important geopolitical actor 
was and has been a liberal democracy, namely the US. One of the, one of the things that may well happen is ascendancy of, of China is that one of these days we're going to wake up. I mean, given, given the, what we're seeing in the case of the US, given the profound dysfunctionality of the US political system, given the shambolic response of the US to the current pandemic, we may well wake up one of these days in a world where the single most important geopolitical actor is no longer a liberal democracy, is China. And the effort to spread the democratic creed will become far more difficult than it's been over the past half a century. Number one. Number two, I think one of the, of the crucial arguments in favor of democracy has always been, at least, you know, that's the way I was brought to believe that one of the issues that democracies did in a, in a very good way, in a very elegant way, was to solve one of the things that authoritarian systems always had problems with, which was the issue of succession. Yeah. Democracies were supposed to provide a very elegant solution to that. Yeah. Well, given what's happening in the U.S., you start wondering. I mean, that, that, that kind of elegant solution has to be underpinned by a set of understandings that if those understandings crumble, then one of the big arguments in favor of democracy follows suit. One of the big arguments in favor of democracy is very severely weakened. Yeah. So I, I, it's a... Uh, the impact of what we're seeing in terms of, of, the, of the example of the allure that a democracy may have for many, for many countries is, is dramatic. And uh, I, I just wish that the, the people who are alleging uh, voter fraud in the United States, that they would realize the implications of what they are saying far beyond America, just as you described, Kevin. Um, because America has always been much more than any, any other country, America has been uh, the representative of the idea of democracy, has been the shining light. And, and as you say, if, if it's not seen as a functioning democracy anymore, why would emerging democracies, emerging economies want to emulate it? The thing is, you know, there, there might be a, you know, there might be something to rescue here, which is that in, in a way, the American example became too dominant in terms of the, of the global discussion on democracy. We are moving into a, different, into a different kind of discussion where, to some extent, we're in a better position to learn together and to learn in a more humble way what a good democracy should look like. At this point, no one no one in, 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 in his right mind would regard the US political system as an example. But there are other democracies out there that are really showing real strengths, you know, in terms, for example, of dealing with the pandemic in, in, a, in an efficient, efficacious way, while also staying true to basic democratic principles. I mean, the likes of New Zealand, the likes of Germany. I mean, actually, one of, one of the, you know a lot about European political systems and, and, 
the history of of Europe, uh, Liz, and and it it never ceases to amaze me. You know, when I find myself thinking that, if anything, the leading democratic power these days in the world is Germany. Yeah. Think think about the the extraordinary turn of events that this is, given what happened in the 20th century. But it, it's it's the way it is. I mean, is is the, the the shining example is no longer the U.S. I mean, what, what I'm trying to say is that I think one of the good things about what's uh, the few good things about what's happening in the U.S. is that we're going to have a more pluralistic discussion about the features and the quality of democracy going forward. Yeah. A, a discussion less dominated by the U.S. Uh, example. I mean, my impression is that going forward the political soft power of the U.S. to export the model is almost irretrievably lost. But as, as you say, uh, there are other countries that, that uh, have done really well, and, and we should point out that Germany uh, is a federal model just like the U.S., but it has managed to, the, the central government has managed to work with the states to solve this really extremely tricky issue of um, not to solve it, but to address extremely tricky issue of of uh, coronavirus uh, rules and restrictions, and 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 indeed how society should keep functioning. Uh, so the, you're right that there are democracies that have performed surprisingly well, and, and maybe that's what we should focus on. And maybe it, it just points to the fact that that the post-war model of of the United States uh, setting the tone in all kinds of ways, from from uh, from military might to to the shining example of its democracy, that's changing and it doesn't necessarily have to change, change in, in, in a negative way that, that people like me worry about what China would replace it. But uh, Germany could, for example, replace it as or, or play a similarly important role as, as a democratic model to, to uh, look at and, and learn from. Or perhaps we don't need, we don't need a model. I mean, we need different a different kind of discussion where countries are more willing to learn from each other. I mean, that's exactly the kind of stuff that we do here at IDEA. You know, we try to tease out experiences from different places when it comes to the workings of democratic institutions and try to disseminate those experiences. That's exactly what we do here. Yeah. And, and perhaps, you know, this is a better, a better way to come up with better democratic practices that simply trying to to export an example a bit from germany or from the us or from from whatever i mean i think it's a it has to be a a process of collective construction adapted to the context and i think we're in a better ironically we're in a better position to do that now as a result of the weakening of the uh, overwhelming dominance of the u.s example in the global democratic discussion and and for the rest of us in liberal uh, living living in liberal democracies or mature democracies uh, this is a wake-up call uh, that shows that that we have to take our responsibility uh, for democracy seriously uh, because if we don't democracy uh, will our democracies will crumble look liz we seldom think in those terms but democracies the way we know them are very recent creatures and the reason why they're recent creatures is because historically the norm 
for human societies have been to follow the lead of strong men. And it was always men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to follow the lead of strong men and to, I mean, the idea that our identity should be defined in terms of belonging to a community defined by a, you know, by a, a set of rights before which we are all equal that's a that's a that's an alien conception for most of human history i mean for most of human history we belong to a tribe yeah and we don't belong to an abstract community no no we belong to a community of people that look like us so it's a very novel creation and as such is a very fragile creation and it swims against very profound tides in human nature and if we don't put in the effort to protect those values and protect those institutions that give life to democracy the jungle grows back the jungle grows back and 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 that's what we've been seeing over over the recent past i mean the 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 impulses the xenophobic impulses the 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 authoritarian impulses the impulses to embrace strongmen that's been the norm for human history and it's better that we recognize that exactly and and let's not allow the jungle to grow back let's take our responsibility those of us lucky enough to live in 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 uh highly developed democracies. Let's take our responsibility to keep those democracies uh, healthy uh, so that um, uh, the, so that they can th- continue to thrive because democracies don't survive on their own. And uh, those of us who don't have the right to vote in America will be um, anxiously watching the developments uh, in the United States uh, for the next few weeks and beyond. Um, it is has been an enormous pleasure to, to uh, speak with you, Kevin, and uh, a, an uplifting experience as well. I, I, I think your points about learning from, from countries other than the United States is, is, is a fantastic one. And Germany, for example, has a, an important role to play in, in showing how democracy can be done. Now, uh, feel free to tweet me at Elizabeth Braw and uh, feel free to subscribe and comment on Apple and Spotify as well. Many thanks to our producers, Olivia Leslie and Anya Terrell. We'll be back very soon with another episode and another guest who's doing pioneering work. See you on the cusp.